morning. My name is Bruno, and I'm the pastoral resident here at Winchester Baptist Church. And I invite you to please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 8. Isaiah, chapter 8. And if you are using one of the Bibles beneath your seat, it is found on page 572. 572, Isaiah 8, and we'll read it beginning on verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all your far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but we'll come to nothing. Speak a word but will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to talk in the way of these people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that these people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children who the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the medians and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way to the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Can you please pray with me? Dear Lord, what we have not, please give us. What we know not, please teach us. What we are not, make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's something that I can't wait to tell you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, it's still, still August, right? I'm just a few months ahead. But uh, for me, it's really hard to read these verses, especially on chapter 9, and not to think about Christmas. When I grew up in my church in Brazil, I, I could tell it, like, oh, it's December, it's time to read Isaiah 9 again. <laughs> and I, I guess you all know that back in Brazil, in South America, the seasons are reversed. So when it's summer here in the U.S., it is winter in Brazil, and then when it's winter in the U.S., it is summer in Brazil. So let's do an exercise. Try to picture this. It is Christmas time, but it's 100 degrees outside. There's no chance that there will be snow. No white Christmas for you. Sorry. Santa looks a little silly with all those winter clothes. Yeah, no miracle on 34th Street. Not going to happen. And you watch those Charlie Brown movies, you know, the kids playing on the snow, and what is that? <laughs> what is going on here? Okay, but then you grow up, and you come to study at Westminster Seminary in Pennsylvania. Finally, I'm going to have my white Christmas. Yeah, now it's going to happen. And you see the snow falling. You see all the Christmas lights. It is the best time of the year. But then you discover that snow is really beautiful. 
but as you know, it's also cold. It is slippery. And you have to clean it before you take your car out. And winter is cold. The days are shorter. It is dark outside. And it lasts way too long. Maybe many of you read and remember the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember, it was always winter, but never Christmas. Right, kids? Winter is a good time, but winter without Christmas, it's not the same. On the other hand, Christmas is a very beautiful time. But Christmas is also a sad time for many people. For many people, Christmas is a sad time because they are alone. Many people spend Christmas alone. For many people, Christmas is just a reminder that they are strange for their families and they have no place to go. It's not a pleasant topic to talk about, but many people commit suicide around Christmas. In a way, those Christmas lights outside highlight the darkness that people have inside. So, what do we see in this passage in Isaiah? Darkness and light. Judah is threatened by all sides, as Alan preached last Sunday. King Ahaz is trying to build alliances. He doesn't trust that God is with him. And what God is saying, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Do not fear what they fear. Let God be your dread. So this is what I want us to see this morning. Do not fear what people fear. Let God be your dread. For those who fear man, there will be darkness. But for those who fear God, light. So my prayer is that for us, that we may fear God so that his light may shine in our darkness. So, do not fear what they fear. Fear the Lord. I think a little background is helpful for us to understand this passage. So, Alan did the half lifting for me last week. Thank you, Alan, when he was preaching. What is happening here? Judah is surrounded by enemies, enemies on every side. The superpower of that time was the Assyrian Empire. 
So the Assyrian Empire was attacking Judah. And at the same time, Israel and Syria were also attacking Judah. And when Ahaz found that, Ahaz, the king of Judah, he was terrified. As the passage says, the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so, what did Ahaz do? Well, he decided to build an alliance with Assyria to defend Jerusalem. Sounds right. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Well, not really. They should hope in God. God was God is saying to Judah that they should find hope in Emmanuel. Emmanuel. They should find hope in knowing that God is with them. And so, because Ahaz failed to trust that God was with him, God was bringing judgment on Judah. And that's how we come to this passage in chapters 8 and 9. God is saying to Isaiah, don't behave like these people. More precisely, God is saying to Isaiah, do not fear what they fear. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. The fear of the Lord. That's a very common expression in the Bible. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what is that? What does the Bible mean by the fear of the Lord? So, Martin Luther explained this in the following way. Martin Luther said that there are two ways in which we can fear the Lord. The first way is to fear the Lord with a slavish fear, to fear God as if he is an evil master. And I think we can see that in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Maybe you remember that. This man, he was a master, and he went on a journey, and he left some talents with his servants. To the first servant, he gave five talents, and then to the second servant, he gave him two talents, uh, and then to the last servant, he gave one talent. A talent was a measure of money in that time. And so he went on his journey, and he came back, and what happened? The first servant that had five talents gave him ten talents back, and the second service servant had two talents and gave him four talents back. And the last servant, who had just one talent, well, the last servant said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. And what the master answered, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap what I have not sown, and gather what I scared no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received 
what was my own with interest. And that servant received his judgment. But there are some ironies in this passage. The first irony is that this servant didn't really fear his master. If he feared his master, what should, have been, what should he do? He should obey his master and invest that talent. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's the first irony in this passage. The second irony is that this master was not an evil master. He was a good man. But that's not that servant treated him. So what happened? The servant received the punishment for treating his master as something that he was not. So that's the first way that we can fear God. Thinking that God is evil, thinking that God wants to hurt us, and that we should treat him like this servant treated his master. The second way that we can fear God is to fear him just like a child fears his father. A loving father. A child doesn't fear his father because he's evil, but because the child loves his father and respects him. Some fear God because they think that he is an evil master. But we should fear God because he is good, because we understand who God is. So this is one of the greatest paradoxes in the Bible. We know that God is good. And because of that, we fear him. So to illustrate that, Again, I'm going to go to the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I think a lot of us know that in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is a lion that represents God. And he becomes friends with these children. But the children haven't met Aslan yet. So they no, don't know that he's a lion. They think that he's a man. And so the, ch the children learn that God is a lion. And they get scared. Because he is a lion, and lions are dangerous. And so one of the children asks, is he safe? And the other character gives a great answer. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king. People who have not been in Arnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. That's our God. And this is a great paradox. Galatians 4, 7 says, We are no longer slaves. We are sons. And 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, God gives a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And yet, we fear the Lord with a reverent fear. What do you fear? Did you notice? This passage is saying that you will fear something. I remember when I was little, 
I feared the dark. And then I prayed a lot, and God helped me overcome my fear of the dark. But then I grew, and today I fear other things. I fear losing my job. I fear failing. I think that most of all, I fear what people will think about me. And because I fear what people will think about me, that people will think I'm a loser, I become a people pleaser. I try to be what people want me to be. I try to fit in. I try to become just like the people around me. This passage is saying that to fear something and to worship something are very closely connected. Ahaz was fearing the nations around Judah. And so Ahaz made an alliance with Assyria. And it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean... That's the most powerful nation. My nation is small, so I'm going to run to Assyria. And so he did. Ahaz feared Assyria, so he ran to Assyria. He became a slave to Assyria. He became an Assyrian. I want to repeat something that I said in my first sermon here at Winbat. You become the thing that you worship. Every one of us is fearing something. Every one of us is worshiping something. And we will be just like the thing that we worship. Because we fear God, we have to run to God. The only place to be safe from God is in God. And if we run to God, we will become just like God. But we won't be slaves. We will become his sons. This is what Matthew 10, 28 says. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is it who can destroy both soul and body in hell? God. It's God. Three times in verse 9 on Isaiah 8, God is saying that these nations will be shattered. And indeed, do you know where is Assyria? Have you found Assyria in the map? No. It's not there anymore. Where is Babylon? Those nations are gone. Long gone. Don't fear something that will be shattered. Don't fear what people will think about you. Don't try to fit in. Do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, 
but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Hebrews 13, 6, 13 verse 6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So that's the first point. Do not fear what they fear. Fear the Lord. The second point is, the fear of man produces darkness. Look to verses 20 to 22 on chapter 8. It is showing the consequences of not fearing the Lord. What they have as consequence. Distress, hunger. But there is one metaphor that stands out. Darkness. Fear of man produces darkness. And there's an irony in these verses as well. Because of their sin, people fall in darkness. And what is their reaction? How people react when they fall in darkness? On verse 21, people get angry with God. I said this before, and I want to say it again. God is not the author of sin. That's what James 1.13 says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We can also see that in 1 John 1.5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. To say that God is the author of sin is a heresy called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism. And it shouldn't even be called that way because it has nothing to do with Calvinism. It should be called anti-Calvinism. It's just the opposite of what Calvin taught. We should understand these things in light of Romans 1. Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying that people know that there is a God. Everybody knows that God exists. More than that, people know that they should honor Him as God and be thankful to Him. And yet, people suppress this knowledge in their sin. And what God does about that? the fact that people suppress the knowledge of God. Three times in Romans 1, Paul says that God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Did God bring darkness into the lives of these people? 
Yes, he did. He's the judge of all the earth. But these people also brought darkness into their own lives. This is a central truth that the Bible teaches. God is sovereign and we are responsible. It's not 50% God is responsible and 50% we are responsible or 60, 40 or whatever other combination. God is 100% sovereign and we are 100% responsible for the things that we do. How can we intellectually reconcile these things? I don't really know. But this is something central that we see in the Bible. The Bible says something really serious. Sin has consequences. Sin has its own consequences built into it. I was having a conversation with Rob or Dr. Spinney about that recently and that's what we were talking when we see God sends judgment and we know the kind of judgment that God can send God can send a flood as a judgment God can send the plagues of Egypt But often God sends something much worse. God just gives us up to our sins as a judgment. So, I want to repeat something that I said before. There are only two kinds of people. Those who are in a broken relationship with God through Adam and those who are in a restored relationship with God through Jesus. These are the only options. When we are in a broken relationship with God through Adam, God gives us up to our sins. But what happens when we are in a restored relationship with God through Jesus? God saves us from our sins. Although sometimes God also gives us up to our sins, but not forever. I want to read something that the London Baptist Confession says about this. In various ways, true believers may have their assurance of salvation shaken, diminished, or interrupted. This may be because of their negligence in preserving it or by failing or by falling into some particular sin which wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit or by some sudden or forceful temptation or by God withdrawing the light of his countenance and causing even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet, believers are never destituted of the seed of God and the life of faith. The love of Christ and the breath and sincerity of heart and conscience of duty. Out of these things, this assurance may in due time be revived by the operation of the Spirit 
And in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. I love the London Baptist Confession, but I think there's something even better. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one who he loves and corrects with punishment everyone he receives as a son. Because we are sons, sometimes God will discipline us. He will let us go into our darkness, but just for a while. What should we do when this happens? We should run back to God, run back to His light. And finally, the fear of God produces light. So in the in chapter nine, we see what God is what God will do to the remnant of Judah. He will bring them light. There are a few things in chapter 9 that I want to explain with more care. It talks about Zebulun, Naphtali, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. So what are all those? Galilee of the nations. These were the first regions that were conquered by the Assyrian Empire. When the Assyrian Empire came and conquered Israel and Judah, these were the first regions to go. They were the first regions to receive the judgment. and But God is also talking about restoring them as in the days of Midian. What are the days of Midian? It's going back to the book of Judges. When the Midianites were attacking Israel and God sent Gideon, one of the judges, to protect them. So this is what the passage is saying. The first lands that will receive judgment, will be restored. They will be restored just like God did it in the past. The same God who saved them in the time of the judges will save them again. So this is what the passage is saying. But how is God doing that? Well, on verse 6 it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It seems that this passage is alluded to in Luke chapter 1, referring to Jesus, but in any case, we know that this child is the same Emmanuel child of chapter 7, verse 14. And just like Alan explained, this child is Jesus. As Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is one last thing that I want to explain from this passage. Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, I think that all these things are fairly clear, easy to understand. But Jesus is also called Everlasting Father. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is not God the Father. So why is this passage calling him Everlasting Father? Well, this passage is comparing Jesus to a king 
He is the prince of peace. But he is more than that. He is not a king that rules as an evil master. He is a good king who cares for his people, just like a father cares for his children. So this is the paradox, the beautiful paradox that we have here. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a son. Jesus is our older brother who cares for us like a father. He is God with us. Through a child, God makes his light shine upon us. So, like I said in the introduction, Christmas is called the best time of the year. It can also be a pretty tough time for many. And Christmas in Brazil is tough because it's so hot outside. But I think that it actually helps. Because it's so hot to celebrate Christmas when it's summer, that makes us slow down a little and think about what we are doing. Maybe uh, Christmas in America is hard for other reasons. It is cold. The days are shorter. The nights are longer. But the Christmas lights help to bring some joy. At least for many. Because for others, the Christmas lights are just a cultural thing. It's just something that we do because that's what people do, right? Put on the Christmas lights. And for others, the Christmas lights are just a sad reminder that they will be alone on another holiday. So I want to give you a suggestion as application. And you don't necessarily have to do this. But did you know that we don't even know when Jesus was born? We celebrate Christmas on December 25th, right? But most people agree that Jesus was probably not born on that date. But it's a convention for many centuries already to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. And some of our Puritan forefathers decided not to celebrate Christmas because since the Bible doesn't say when he was born and the Bible doesn't say that we have to celebrate Christmas, some of the Puritans, some of the old Baptists thought that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas at all. And I I want to say that I totally respect that and maybe that's what you want to do. But if you want to celebrate Christmas next December and you want to put on the Christmas lights, don't let that be just a cultural thing. Don't let that be something that you do just, well, that's what people do around Christmas, right? When you put on the Christmas lights, Be intentional about it. Think about why are you doing that. Think about Jesus. And especially, make sure that when you put the Christmas lights, that you're thinking that there is a greater light 
a much more important light that God brought to us through Jesus Christ. So this is what I want us to see this morning. Don't fear what people fear. Don't be in dread. Let God be your fear. For those who fear men, there will be darkness. But for those who fear God, there will be light. So my prayer again is that this light may shine in your, in your darkness. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the salvation that you brought to us. That although we were lost in our sins, although we were lost in the darkness that our sins produce, you brought us light. Thank you, Lord. Let this shine light in our hearts. Please, Lord, help us not to fear what other people fear, but to fear you as a loving Father who cares for us, knowing that we don't have to fear judgment, but that we know that you care and that you will keep us safe to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.